Welcome to Freedom Now Travel Express Yourself, where we explore experiencing freedom and passion through different kinds of travel with people from all over the world. This season, we're talking about experiencing freedom through military travel, government work travel, and many other interesting types of jobs where there is work travel. In these episodes, we hear from different guests about how traveling for the military and government and other work can be a source of experiencing freedom through travel. Have you ever been traveling and wondered to yourself, what would Sidney Poitier do? Well, this episode's guest had that thought many times as a young first-time traveler. Jeffrey Bowden shares with us how a career of over 35 years as an American Sign Language interpreter led to loads of travel and what he likes to call encounters. You'll hear about his journey from custodian to American Sign Language interpreter to freelance interpreter to covering almost 27 countries as a staff interpreter. With each of his journeys, he becomes a more seasoned traveler, learning to explore and challenge himself and take on the dignity and quality of Sidney Poitier. From Athens to Uganda to Nigeria to Egypt, Jeffrey molded his persona to become a better traveler. He'll share some advice about what it takes to find yourself rooted and grounded in a place that you've never been and what kind of connections you probably already have that you might not be aware of that you can make use of. And he gives himself as an example. Listen as he gives us the rundown on how travel through his work with the government has lent itself to experiencing and expressing freedom and passion. He became a seasoned traveler who knows how to trust his gut. I'm Antonio Goodwin, your host, and you're listening to Freedom Now Travel, Express Yourself. Get ready for takeoff, buckle up, here we go. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit okay. about who you are. Okay, okay. Thank you, Antonio. My name is Jeff Bowden. I'm a, uh, born in North Carolina, uh, raised primarily in the Washington, D.C. area. 20-year veteran of staff interpreter for the Department of State, sign language interpreter, but uh, overall interpreter somewhere around 35 to 40 years. I haven't stopped yet. Got involved in deafness through my progressive employment opportunities. I started at a guy that my father worked at Guy University. I later joined Guy University as a custodian. They had finished building the high school for the deaf. I got tired of cleaning the bathroom, so I went up there and worked in the dorms. Did a variety of different positions there as night supervisor and day resident assistant and facilities assistant. So, but I got really immersed in the deaf community from that real start. Guy is the world's only liberal arts university for the deaf, of the deaf, about the deaf. It's kind of the mecca of deaf education. It was charted, I think, maybe about six months after Howard University. They share that kind of history. Guy that's located in Northeast Washington, D.C. So it can be called a deaf university. It can be called a deaf university. It has local preschool, elementary, high school, pre-college, and post-secondary programs, and all the way up to the terminal degrees. And so you and were working on campus around yeah. deaf people, started out on the custodial staff, and decided, yeah. you know what, there's something more you want to do <laughs> while here. And then that's led yeah. you to... Led me to directing a senior center for the deaf. I directed that program for six years. I served on a number of community-based program boards. At that time, the uh, passage of the American Disabilities Act and a variety of legislative uh, inroads for persons with disabilities started to take hold. The advocacy became a big thing. 
In the black community, we had two programs, Deaf Reach and Deaf Pride. And these were started by parents of deaf children who knew that for the success of their children to be realized, they had to have a best interest. And so access to sign language interpreters, advocacy for educational opportunities for their children who were black. The guy that has a history of racism uh, and segregation. And so even before Brown versus Board of Education, there is the Miller versus the Board of Education in Washington, D.C., where they actually fought uh, to get the same opportunities on campus that the rest of the students were. Before, the, the Black students were allowed to come on campus but couldn't take classes on campus. They had to be shipped to the Merlin School for the in Baltimore. Parents would have to bring their kids to school and then a whole line of yellow cats, this is 1952, 53, 54. And then the cats would take them to Union Station, they get on the train, ride up to Baltimore, go to a school, and then ride back, and then take the cat. So it was really every the most ridiculous use of resources to try to maintain a, a status quo of segregation and discrimination. What got you to interpreting? Working in the dorms, I didn't know that interpreting was a thing. I I knew there were deaf people, and I knew that they would use sign language. But I didn't know anything about this interpreting dynamic, this, this intermediary. And I went from custodial services, where we didn't have to use sign language, and I started working in the dormitories. And winters in Washington can be kind of could be a, a pretty precarious. Well, perfect storm. There was a subway crash underground. The blue line, two trains ran into each other. Three people lost their lives. National Airport was trying to get planes out of there because the snowstorm was going to be a major blizzard. And so they didn't have the technique of the icing wings. They didn't know anything about it. And Air Florida was scheduled to take off, but they didn't de-ice the wings. So their wings were too heavy. And so it, it rose and then it crashed on top of the 14th Street Bridge and landed into the Potomac River. And then there was the major snowstorm where they closed the government without any real system. So everybody hit the streets at the same time. So now we got a major traffic all over the region. There's no way you can get in DC or out of DC. The snow's already piled up. DC doesn't have a real snow removal system like Detroit or New York. So it was a mess. And I'm in a dorm and I'm the only one that I could hear. And the kids became very concerned. Some of them their parents was in the, these accidents. And so, I'm, there was no captioning. There was before the caption machine was a, you know, it looked like a small VCR, maybe a small Game Boy console. Well, we had those those types of um, consoles on top of the TV set. They would transcribe, but not all programs were captioned. I mean, the only thing that was captioned at the time was public broadcasting programs with no major network tech captioning. And so there was no way to really discern what was going on. All you saw was newscaster. 14th Street Bridge, Newcaster, subway sign, Newcaster, people stuck in gridlock. And they kept asking me, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And I saw, I felt compelled to sit in front of a, a kind of a, uh, we had a ramp and I sit on the banister under the TV set. My sign language vocabulary consisted maybe about maybe 600 words, maybe less, probably less than that, probably less than 300. And I was just trying to keep it going. Train, okay, what's the train? Sign a train, what's that? Crash, or oh, two fists bumped together. Okay, fine. Airplane, how do you do that with your hands? This, okay, what do you do when it falls down from the ground? Boom, oh, that. And so it, it's like I was a static, better than nothing conveyor of information on this TV set. 
And it just hit me, not so much how inept I was, but though that was part of it, it was just, wow, I'm a link, an actual link between what's happening in the hearing world and the deaf community that's in front of me. And looking back over 40 plus years of involvement with the deaf community, that was probably the epiphany right there. Let's yeah. fast forward. How did you get to the State Department? I took a freelance job at the State Department. Freelance interpreters get to take jobs all over the place. And a young lady picked me up the front door and said, you know, we have a job opening here. You should apply. I said, oh, okay, I'll give it some thought. So I said, well, let me apply for the jobs. And it's funny because they were asking me to rate myself one zero to five on knowledge, skills, and KSA and attributes. And I gave myself a five on everything. <laughs> I just figured, who, who better? <laughs> and so I got the job. And that's when it began. That was 1996. And so one guy just really had an affinity for me. He was like, who? He said, you got the job, deaf guy. I said, okay, it's nice to know. And he told me before even the government told me. That's he nice. Like, he, he was said, definitely a fan. Oh, yeah. He, I, I don't know how it happened. I don't know who else applied for the job. But when you know God has something for you, it doesn't even matter. It's for you. And so he came to my office and he said, come, let's go. I said, where are we going? I said, we're going to get our passports. I said, passport for what? He said, I'm going overseas. You're coming with me. I said, going where? He said, Suriname. I said, what is a Suriname? I had no idea, nothing. My travel was limited. I think I went to Jamaica once, or Virgin Islands, maybe. But never, never did any extensive travel. Nothing, nothing like that. Nothing. And yeah. working with the guy and knowing his job pretty intimately, because I was his staff interpreter in his own office, I was able to learn a lot about what he was doing as as professional. So my voicing got better. Uh, gosh, he does the same thing every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. And voicing, and, you mean you're you're interpreting what he's signing to hearing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's making a presentation overseas and trained the locally employed staff, the embassies have two layers to staff, they have foreign service individuals. Then they have the locally people who grazed in the country who actually work at the embassies for six or seven years before he retired. I think we covered almost 27 countries. And this and is so for an extended period of time you went to countries no, to stay. No, a time. A week, well, at a, a week at a time. A week at a time. A week at a time. I think the longest we stay was two weeks. It depends on the size of the post. That's what we call an embassy. And that got me into the federal government and made it a likable federal government job because I had never been on a job where it says, go get a passport because we're going someplace. And then go to really amazing places. And this is Kansas anymore. You know, <laughs> the transportation, the smell of the air, the morning air, the, the people, the traffic, the cars, the, the trees, the, the buildings. Everything is, nah, this is not Southeast Washington. This is not Brooklyn, New York. This is not, you know, Clinton, North Carolina, the farmland. This is another country, another language. Even though we stayed in a hotel and all the amenities were there, you still knew you were not in the U.S. What was that first experience like? You're going to get a passport. You're about to embark on this trip. What's going through your mind? What What is that like for you? I felt like a kid. And, you know, sometimes the parents will let their children travel, maybe a marriage situation, or go see grandma, and they'll put them on a plane, and they'll put it, I think the airline gives them a, kind of a head, like, what was it, a, a, a lanyard? No, yeah, kind of a lanyard, but a, a, a sign that says, you know, juvenile, name. I felt like the kid. I felt like I needed an escort. I felt like somebody needed to pick me up at the airport, hold my hand, get my bags, bring me something to eat, and tell me where to sit down and be quiet. 
I really felt like I, too, I didn't have any range of comfort level about the environment or the desire to seek it out. Just give me someplace where I can stay out of trouble. Talk, talk more about that. Like you, you felt like you needed a guide or what was, yeah. uh, was there something uncomfortable about yeah, this first experience? The, I, yeah, I was, I was, I was felt like a fish out of water. I, I felt that language was a barrier. I was not in, it wasn't my familiar. I wasn't in my familiar. And my my family background was never many people who have been international. I think the only person that traveled was an uncle who was in World War II. Everyone else stayed in the small town of North Carolina or stayed in the small community in Washington, two blocks square, you know, and that that's our hood. That's our hood. As a matter of fact, we, we defended it, a park bench and you know, a playground. That's how that's how it was. And so to go from that paradigm to, okay, you're new here and you don't know anybody and streets have different languages on their street signs. You don't know what's going on. And so in Africa, it wasn't that bad because folks look like you, but still Africa. So, you so know, you're black. Just the continent, what was yeah. it a particular place, like a particular country? And you don't have to, Yeah, it can be like a particular country, but was it a particular place in Africa that you felt like, ah, I feel okay? I always had to be kind of aware, wherever, wherever. Yeah, yeah. Um, So Suriname, um, it was kind of kind of guarded and kind of secure because they would always send somebody to pick you up from the airport. So cool, nice. I don't have to ride a bus. Then we get to our hotel and they bring your bags in. Okay, great. I'm being taken care of. I'm being escorted. They take you to your room. And then you go to your room and you unload your bags and stuff and say, now we're going to the embassy. So I was kind of always within the confines of the job itself. But in the free time is where I really got hit because I'm like, I can't stay in this hotel all the time. I really need to get out of this hotel and walk around the block. So I made a strategy of I was going to walk the, the perimeter of the hotel. If it was on a street corner, I walk down the sidewalk, make a right, walk down the sidewalk again, make another right. Four corners, I'm back in the front of the hotel again. But within that walk, you're kind of watching, you're kind of seeing what's going on, a flower shop, a restaurant, things like that, that is, oh, okay, this is how this happens here. And so that was really kind of, and I had, you know, one person that really big influence as far as movies go was Sidney Poitier. And he kind of gave me this dignity walk about it. You know, wherever you are, maintain your dignity, maintain your persona, you'll be fine. You you know, you're going to be different, but you always was different. But dignity is a good thing. Treat people with dignity, expect dignity in, in return. So I kind of say, I can't be Jeffrey, the, the homeboy from Southeast Washington. I have to kind of challenge somebody who had a little bit more wherewithal. And so I thought, okay, wait, what would Sidney Poitier do? Sidney Poitier would get out, go to the restaurant. And he would get out and go to the store. He'd get out and, you know, people would approach him and he, you know, he'd speak with, with dignity and poise and, and, and be affable and, and people would you know, be ingratiating and cool. Oh, no, that's, 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 that's a nice guy. He's a good guy. So that was really that, that thing that challenged me best. I did that as a part of my my persona wherever I went. Athens, Greece, Uganda, Durban, Joburg, Egypt. I felt that my appearance was important, my demeanor, my posture, and my willingness to be around people, just be welcoming. 
And one of my last travels was Moldova, which is a small country just between Ukraine and Romania. It's very small, very poor. It still has the, 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 the scars from World War II. Great wine there, but just a very poor country. But at the same time, the dynamics were very peculiar to me because you saw Lamborghinis and Mercedes-Benz and Rolls Royces. I said, well, how is this country being so poor when I have so much obvious wealth? And then people explain, okay, well, those are the Russian oligarchs and they, they channel their money here and they wash it. And they live lavishly here. They only live in Russia. Russia has too many controls over them. So what gave you uh, the, the thought that it's a poor country? The streets, I mean, the, the, the total dynamic of the buildings and stuff just really rusted. The things that you notice, constructions that were never completed. High rise with the with the scaffold cranes that never moved. Nobody worked. The buildings and the buses, transportation, very old, not modern. Streets tore up like you know, they ain't seen a pothole repair. People were really nice. And then you would talk to someone who who's a man in the street kind of thing. He said, look at the faces of the people on the buses. Nobody smiles. So they're very sad people here. So they, they know they don't have a lot. They know they're eking out a living and they're not happy here. Who was this uh, sharing this? This, with was, this was a guy that just sort of saw me walking down the street. Um, a local. Yeah. Yeah. He asked me English. I mean, I couldn't speak Romanian. I think he's Romanian and Russian. I think I said good morning or something. Again, learning how to get out of my own comfort box. Good morning, how are you doing? Yeah, I, well, how are you? you? You're not from here. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, what gave it away? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, in Moldova, I, I, I was so unique, <laughs> pretty much. And so in Moldova, I learned, I have been such a seasoned traveler to now I'm going to clubs, very nice clubs, restaurants, very nice restaurant, the park. I would walk back and forth to work. I would not have done that the first few years of there. I would have to catch a cab everywhere just because I needed to be contained and, and safe. But now I'm walking because Moldova doesn't have a real strong transportation system. I work them today. And in the evenings I get off and I, you know, go home, get something to eat. I had an apartment, I cook, you know, and then a little diner that I, you know, patronized on a regular. It was really cool. They had TV and you know, I just enjoyed the the the, the freedom of or the relaxed state of having a purpose to be there and at the same time something to keep you interested in being there. And then the other thing that I always made a point of doing was to seek out sign language interpreters and the deaf community in the country, because I knew they were there. Not always as obvious, but there. And so the network of the deaf community is really kind of close. I talked to this person in this country and they said, oh yeah, you want to be there? Well, look up Slob. Sloppy's there. Hey, so I'm you talked to someone I'm... from the States. Yeah. You're saying, and then they would connect you with someone to yeah. another country. Uh, yeah. And the local McDonald's or, you know, Starbucks or something, they, they're everywhere. And we sit, we chat for a minute. They said, well, let me take you to the Association for the Deaf Building. We have the National you know, the Country Association of Moldovan Association for the Deaf or the Thailand Association for the Deaf or the, you know, and it's just, you know, you're not doing anything, I'm not doing anything, let's go. And, and when you, now you got another pair of eyes and they know their city, so now you can see things that you would not see because you're not gazing 
all over the place. Now you can stargaze, you can build gaze, you can look at statues. But where before when I was walking back to work, I was just making sure I remember how to get there. Across this street, then the turn on this street, and then I walk in this neighborhood, and I stay on this sidewalk, and I kind of keep, you know, keep my head on a swivel. Well, this guy with me, so he's doing that. He's getting guiding me somewhere, so I'm going. So it was that kind of expanded benefit of being overseas is knowing somebody that's there, and my affinity with the deaf community and sign language interpreters was an added bonus. I wanted to how you guys are flowing over here in the United States. We get paid pretty well and our work conditions are really pretty conducive and we get to negotiate our own revenue stream and we can start our own businesses. And there, well, we don't get paid or we may not get paid or we, I don't, we don't have a school that teaches how to interpret or we know the code of professional conduct uh, but we don't apply it here. Uh, the deaf community are still marginalized. There are no jobs for them. You know, they don't get their driver's license. They cannot buy a house. You know, they're not allowed to get married. Wow, learn something. You know, we in the United States, the streets are paved with gold, and then you have you know, over there where it's a living hell. And so I appreciated getting out of my comfort level, being able to walk out of the hotel and meet people, or not meet people, but encounter people. Eh, maybe meet them, maybe not, but encounter. You know, just be in a personal space for a minute or two. Smile, greet. And if they spoke English, we get along. If they didn't speak English, we didn't hold it against each other. We kept it moving. And that picked up after my, my third or fourth trip traveling overseas that, you know, I could now be comfortable in my skin and I could be comfortable in your country and then still now pick up the parameters of where that really works together to my benefit. We'll pause for a brief message brought to you by AntonioGoodwin.org, committed to creating a world where everyone thrives moment by moment and experiences unrelenting freedom in the life that they design. Maybe you or someone you know has experienced a certain level of success in your personal lives, in the career or finances that you have, but your life is not thriving and there's no experience of freedom. We coach people through uncovering and replacing limiting beliefs and creating abundance mindsets so you can thrive, enjoy freedom, and live life by design. AntonioGoodwin.org, designed to thrive and experience freedom. To join the community and to find more information, go to AntonioGoodwin.org. What would you say was an experience that you have carried with you and it was probably, I don't know, the most beneficial, but something that you would say was a major impact on your life that you carry with you to the state because you were able to travel while working and have these experiences? Speaking legitimately about the worldview, being there and seeing economic decisions and political decisions and social decisions and education and, and access to services. And then come back here and go, we should not be complaining. <laughs> we need to work and improve, but we are so far ahead and we're so much more than what you think. London, Greece, Moldova, Eastern Europe, didn't do a lot of traveling in the European theater as much. I would have liked to gone to Vienna or to Paris. But London was a hoot. I did that twice. Greece, Athens was a hoot. I did that twice. Egypt was amazing. Did that twice. 
and then left Cairo and went into the country of Egypt. And there were a couple of places that looked like Las Vegas. And like, wow, we got neon lights everywhere. Yeah, this is where we go to relax and, and party and gamble. So around the whole dynamic of Middle East, which we know with how that came about, Egypt being in Africa and Egypt with the pyramids and the Sphinx and the traffic and thinking, oh, guys, it's heavy Muslim influence, so you can't possibly have fun. The women are cloaked from head to toe, you know, and then you go to maybe a uh, hundred miles inside of, of Egypt, and it's like I say, it's like Vegas, gambling and there's parties and people are sitting around in restaurants and having a great time. Like, is this still Egypt? Yeah, <laughs> this is where we go to get away from it all. And so it was, you know, that was the other thing. But uh, walking, even in the country that was sophisticated, I remember walking around in Athens and I had gone somewhere. I was not that far. The hotel was not that far from the embassy. So I said, let me walk. I got plenty of time to get there. Let me take my time. And, but after about a block and a half, two blocks, you realize that now you're, now you're at, at the mercy of the cityscape. And it wasn't dangerous in any factor, although I recognized some biases that was happening around me, but again, I never let it get to me. I always felt like I'm only going to be here for a short time, so I'm not going to throw if you're not going to pick me up for a taxi. As a matter of fact, welcome to America. A black man not being able to take a taxi is not new. <laughs> it's going to happen anywhere. Uh, so I was walking, but I remember when I turned the corner, going up the crest of the hill, I saw the American flag for the embassy. I said, wow, I get it now. The patriotism, the loyalty, the, the affinity of the United States government, and that's your home. Yes, you're here in Athens, and yes, you're walking the streets and, and yes, this is not Florida Avenue in Northeast Washington or Linden Boulevard in East New York. This is you in the middle of Athens, but you see the American flag against all my country, my, my representation. And then you go to the embassy and you show your little badge, you go in and you feel like, wow, I'm home, even though I'm not home. So you take that back to the United States and you don't complain about everything. You know, you recognize that things could be far worse. You recognize that some people aren't doing as well. I mean, you, we go for a driver's license. Who do we pay to get our driver's license? We pay the fees for the driver's license. We do not pay the people for access to get into the building to get our driver's license. We get our forms and we pass it and fill it out. And we pay the fees for the form, but we don't pay the person who's taking our form to make sure it gets passed forward. Now, so did you so experience much, any of this or heard stories in, uh, about in this? Ni year? In Nigeria, yeah. In Nigeria, you go to ATM twice. You go to ATM for the money that you need to buy, whatever this that you need to get, groceries, gas, what have you. Then you go to ATM again for money you need to pay people to get those services. We could be driving down a highway and then someone will come out in the middle, two or three guys with automatic weapons, and stop your car. Now, they got on uniforms. Might be military, might be counter-military-ish, but they're stopping you. Now, three guys with three automatic weapons is not a good thing. They're not a good time for you to run past them. So you pull over. And they walk around the car and look somewhat official. And they say, where are your papers? Then you got the papers. He said, well, your papers doesn't seem to be, you know, your car, just, you know, whatever reason. So hit them up with 500 naira. Okay, you can go now. And you keep going. And that's the way, because you can blow past that, and they will shoot your car. 
So this was a part of, was this a part of a regular experience or was it a one-off experience you had? Regular in Nigeria, regular in Nigeria, especially in Ibadan, in the vicinity around Oyo State and that that area. In Lagos, not so much. I mean, yeah, and not. I didn't spend much time because we landed in Lagos, so I didn't spend a lot of time in the major city. But I stayed with the family and Ibadan, and I was visiting the Andrew Foster School for the Deaf there. Well, to get there, we had to drive this highway system and we got pulled over. I said, well, what did we do wrong? You think we did nothing wrong. So we just have to pay these people. So why? It's good. That's what they do. You were with a driver, a local yeah. driver. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. Navigating yeah. this. Yeah. 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 They told me when I landed in Lagos, said, whatever you do, don't leave the airport. We'll come to get you, but don't walk outside. Jeffrey, what words of advice would you like to share with listeners about experiencing freedom and passion through different kinds of travel, in this case, while you were working with the State Department? Yeah, I would not wait for a job situation to get you to travel. You can travel pretty well if you have a strategy and a system. The first thing I've been telling people, because I didn't know that existed, and I've been working for the embassy for 20 years, is that the main job of embassies overseas is to take care of Americans overseas. Number one, priority, bar none. Not economic relationships, not treaties, not agricultural exchanges, none of that. That's secondary. So if you're an American citizen and you're going overseas, check into the embassy and say, hi, I am here. That's my business. I'm traveling. I don't need to tell people where I'm at. No, tell them. Because if you get sick, if you get in trouble, if something pops off in that country, the U.S. Embassy is obligated to come get you, look for you, pick you up, and get you home. That's their job. Military transport, local airline, whatever it takes, however it takes. So... You shouldn't have any apprehensions of traveling if you have a system. Be, be conscious of your health and pack a little go bag with you that has your ammonium and your Pepto-Bismol and um, some Sudafeds and stuff. And now, so now you're there. Now you don't know anybody, but you can know about because you have affinities. And I, mine was the deaf community. And so even if I didn't know anybody in the country, I knew there might be a school for the deaf in town. And so why don't I just look up the address? And if you go to the concierge to Desert Hotel and ask them about it, they may know people. In fact, they always know people. But if you don't have that affinity, you still can use the hotel to your advantage to go around the country. Because mm-hmm. there will always be somebody that can be a driver. People really, people are very nice sitting there. The other part of it was that from American Citizen Services that they will tell you, yeah, Haiti, they'll tell you, do not drive, do not ride any public transportation. None of them. Why? They don't have any brakes. It's not that they're not going to get there. It's that you may not get there with them because there's no system of checks and balances for things like whether or not you're coming down. You know, I want to go up in the mountain areas of AIT and I want to you know, see the area that's not Port-au-Prince. You know, I'm going to be there. Yeah, but they're coming down the mountain now. And that bus hasn't had a checkup from the neck up since it was built. So in essence, your physical safety, your biological safety, health, and your mental safety. Be aware, but not overly paranoid. I went to work and in, the, in the Philippines, and my hotel was on Rojas, and the embassy was about maybe three blocks over. I could see it from my, from my hotel room. 
And they have street people in Manila. They don't they raise on the streets, never die on the streets. That's life from womb to tomb. And so it's nothing like a little kid to come to you and grab your hand and say, money, see, money, money, sir, money, sir, money, sir. And after, you know, after about the third or fourth time, it gets tiresome. I'm tired of giving you money. No. And that's the, their parents put them up to that. Go get, never had shoes on until they were young adults, you know, just poor. And so I just learned how to not be drawn into that. No, I have no money for you. If I have a crew pesos, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I walked that, that route every day, so people pretty much knew me. They saw me on a regular basis. Tuesday morning, I go, and where there was a lively conversation with various pockets of people, it was silent, and I felt this morose sort of aura around this whole thing. I said, something's wrong here. These people are chatting it up. People are very concerned, people. And so, I remember this one couple had a little baby. And I looked over at her and the baby had a huge burn on the side of her face and arm. And apparently it must have either fell into a fire or got burned. And they didn't even ask me for money, nothing. I just saw the baby being seriously injured and the attitude and the demeanor and the, and the aura of everybody in that general vicinity. I said, oh man, and I kept walking. And I stopped and I said, no. And I probably had, could have been equal to maybe $20, $25 in US money. And I went back and now I got all, you know, got emphatic about it. I, said, okay, I wasn't counting it out, but I just made sure that they could get all of it in their hands. I said, for baby, for baby. And she looked at me, I, I had no idea that they were gonna do it. I know that's a lot of money for poor people who live off of scraps every day. But I knew that that was what I was supposed to do. And I went on my merry way and went to work. 4.30ish, I usually get off work by the time the guy I'm working with as an interpreter, he's off and he's already going back to his, his residence. And I go back and I was going to go. They always tell you that no one will walk the same route all, every day because people will start to be able to gauge your comings and goings. So I was going to go another route, still safe, but not something I do very often. And I was going to go up that street and I stopped. And I said, let me go back to where I came. Because I'm curious as to whether they really took care of that baby. And I got to the general area where the baby was in the morning and I didn't see them. And I said, man, they probably took that money and went on and got drunk or whatever, you know, being stupid and selfish but they were on the other side of the street. And the woman saw me and said, sir, sir, sir. And the baby had fresh bandages on and they had salve and ointment in a bag and a baby had a wrap on their arm. And I said, see, see, for baby, for baby. And I was like, wow. And so I, I kind of chastised myself for being overly suspicious of them, not trusting them to want to take care of that baby. But at the same time, I followed up on that instinct thing. We always have, all of us have that. Somebody told me to do something, or I should or should have. You know, we have that. And I followed up on it. I didn't keep walking. I did not keep going to work. And again, they always said, my, I saw a little kid, man, burnt and hurt. Yeah, too bad for that little kid. What y'all want to do for lunch? No, I stopped and I had an encounter with these people. And was that 2014? Maybe it could have been more than three. And the baby's probably mid-teens, maybe close to 20. 
I don't know if I would I wouldn't have recognized him. I mean, I didn't have that kind of encounter. But that didn't, that, that, but I but I have had encounters with people like that who 20, 30 years they remember me and say, You remember me? So I met you in, when I when you came to my country. I remember you. I remember you. You were the you were the nice one. Oh, okay. <laughs> So that's that's the thing. Go for encounter. You'll find your flow, your mode. You'll find what is what's your fit. You know, take care of yourself. Really take care of yourself. Enjoy the culture, and and try to learn. Try to learn from their eyes. Try to walk in their shoes. So that's probably what I would tell people. Very well. You said it as if it was three short sentences. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. And thank you for sharing your life, really opening up to allow people to have a sense of what the freedom and passion experiences were like for you while you worked at the State Department. Actually, from your start, your inaugural voyage and yeah. that first trip yeah. to to the end. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm not sure if you're getting those. I'm now in the eldest statesmen of interpreting, working with younger interpreters on this stage of looking back, the Sankofa moment. I use the Sankofa as a matter of looking back, and I use I am because you are because of my responsibility and my obligation. And then found out that it's actually a Zulu statement, uh, I am because you are. Um, that's something that people can can take with them when they travel that you are going into history and we have encounters you are because they are and you get to carry that with you and be a contribution no yeah. i love that you've been listening to freedom now travel express yourself Thank you to our guest, Jeffrey Bowden, for being with us on this episode. His story exemplifies how pursuing a passion can lead to an exciting and fulfilling outcome. It's clear that while his job brought him to destinations all over the world, physically, his motivation to explore and challenge himself gave way to something more memorable and meaningful inside of his experiences with travel. This episode was produced by Antonio Goodwin, your host, and Jonathan Murphy. Research and project support provided by Research Dynamo, Dr. Katrina Murphy. And thanks to our writer-in-residence, Nyla Guilford. Be sure to subscribe, find us on any platform where you play your podcasts, or just Google Freedom Now Travel Podcast. And definitely leave us a review if you like what you hear. I hope you do. And by all means, share all of this freedom and passion that you experience in this podcast with other people you know. They, like you, want to be inspired too. I look forward to being with you the next time. Ciao for now.